Wake up! Wake up, wake up, wake up! You talking to me? What we've got here is failure to communicate. Hi, all you girls, boys, and non-binaries out there. This is your boy Ron Dawson coming at you with another edition of your favorite filmmaking podcast that breaks all the rules, Crossing the 180, part of the Art of the Frame podcast network by Film Tools and Pro Video Coalition. Every other week, I have engaging and informative conversations about culture and craft with artists, entrepreneurs, and filmmakers doing amazing work in the world of film and television. Now, one of the things I try to do with this podcast is introduce you, my good listeners, to various aspects of the filmmaking world. Editors, DPs, writers, and producers are all fair game, whether you're above or below the line. In the last episode, I interviewed CEO and founder of the DIY distribution platform Kinema, Christy Marchese. So even film-related entrepreneurs make this show. In light of that, today I have a very special guest for you. One of my best friends is Yolanda T. Cochran. I joke how because she's such a good friend, I tend to forget how truly impressive her CV is. She's a member of the Producers Guild of America and an Academy member. She got her start working at Disney and was at Alcon Entertainment for about a dozen years or so, where she helped the production of such films as the Traveling Pants series, The Blind Side, and Book of Eli. After Alcon, she went on to do work for Netflix, was a TV executive at ABC Freeform, and as of this episode, is executive VP of live television production at Nickelodeon. From filmmaking to television production, Yolanda has deep insights and experience across it all. Perhaps because we like to talk a lot, and she actually is a co-host with me on another podcast, we talked for a long time and covered a lot of ground, so much so that I decided to break this conversation into two parts. In part one, Yolanda and I cover her getting into the business and the state of gender and racial representation in Hollywood, and what it's been like for her as a black woman in the industry. In the next episode of the show in two weeks, she and I will go deep into the roles of producers in both film and television and what sets them apart. This is a great episode to share with anyone who's interested in learning about the business overall. It's kind of like a mini business slash film school class. But enough of my babbling, we have a lot to cover. Here is my interview with Yolanda T. Cochran. See you on the other side. Hey, I want to hop right into it because, you know, we're busy people and you and I tend to have so much to talk about. We've we've had so many conversations. As I said to you when I reached out, um, I wanted to attempt to have, talk about something new and different but also balancing with the fact there are going to be lots of people listening to this who've never had the pleasure of listening to an audio podcast with you. So I want to strike a balance. But with this show, one of the things that I like to do is really get into the artists. So I'd like to start off with a more unconventional question, which was, uh, how was your childhood? Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, now, this is going to be quite the podcast. <laughs> That's pretty amazing that you asked me that question, Ron, because um, <clears throat> I have recently been exploring my childhood quite a bit. Oh, really? I, didn't, I actually um, didn't know that. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's been a big personal topic in mm -hmm. the last, uh, I don't know, 
a couple few weeks, month. Was there something in particular um, that prompted that? Yeah. Uh, so one of my friends, mm-hmm. um, who you know, had a retreat mm-hmm. um, in Ojai. And um, we had like a spiritual guide kind of person there with us. And so um, it was just an opportunity. I mean, it several of the friends got together. Um, my rooster chain, as you know it. Mm-hmm. And um, we, the, the idea was now that we're all vaccinated, you know, we've been, we've been isolated from each other for so long, like everybody else, and the chance to reconnect and kind of just, you know, spend some, you know, this time also has been one where m- many people, most people, I would presume, have had a big period of reflection mm-hmm. from having to isolate. So anyway, right. we've, we've, we had all missed each other and felt disconnected because, you know, we had, weren't able to see each other in person, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, we had a spiritual guide there and it was an opportunity to, you know, explore things further. So that's kind of what prompted it. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyways, uh, I actually was just thinking about my childhood because it played prominently. I mean, obviously, I mean everybody's childhood plays <laughs> prominently <laughs> into what how they turn out so right um it was just interesting because uh i've always known i've always had a specific regard for how i came up mm-hmm. and so I'm, I'm, I approach life very much from a, you know, you need to um, create your own path. You need to guide it. You need to make sure that you're in charge, that you're not relying upon anybody else for anything. Um, you have to be self-sufficient. It was, it's very Ayn Rand, <laughs> sort of, I guess. Uh-huh. Um, and so the, and the reason I'll, I'll go back a little bit to more succinctly answer your question, which is yeah. my parents divorced. I was an only child and my parents divorced when, which I'm, I'm just determining from having some conversations with my aunt. They, I think they divorced when I was around seven, but I think they split when I was more like four ish four or five which is weird because they must mm-hmm. have divorced when i was six i didn't think the divorce took so long anyway mm-hmm. so they can after yeah. they split um i was i mean i was more on my own because i'm an mm-hmm. only child i'm an only child so and my mom i think she was working prior to the split but then now she's like you know needing to provide you know, our home and all of those things. So, and then my aunt, my mother's sister came to live with us to help out because my mother worked um, the late shift. So she needed someone home with me. Um, and then I would see my dad on weekends, which was great. Then um, later down the line, my dad remarried you know, many, uh, like 
you know, maybe five-ish years later. And um, then he had two more children. And by the time I was 15, my mother had been laid off from her job because we lived in Houston, Texas and the oil industry, I don't remember if you remember in the 70s, the lines at the gas station and all, everything, the bottom yeah, it was of crazy. the Yeah. So um, she worked for a Hughes Tool Company, which was an oil and gas company. One of Howard Hughes's company. I came to find out many years oh, later and wow. watching the movie. <laughs> yeah. So um, she got laid off and that play, you know, it took a long time for her to get back on her feet. So when I was 15, there were things that I wanted and things that I needed. I thought I needed clothes and more stuff. And so I went out and got a job. I wasn't much past 15 years old. Hmm. And I started working from that point on, you know, I really felt like I needed to be supporting myself. Not that I was like my mom, mm -hmm. I wasn't paying rent or doing any of that kind of stuff, paying any bills, but anything I needed beyond food and shelter, I thought was my, I basically felt was my responsibility. Mm. And, um, I, and I kind of carried that through the rest of, you know, my formative adult years, mm. I would say. And, that, and my mother also, too, was very, like, because of a lot of these things, I'm sure, she, you know, impressed upon me that I needed to get my education, and I had to rely upon myself, and I couldn't rely upon a man. <laughs> I needed to be able to take care of myself. Right. So, um, yeah, I really felt like I, you know, it's a it's a longer discussion, but I felt like I needed to be self-reliant and even not rely upon my parents. Like I wouldn't be able mm -hmm. to rely upon, I wouldn't be able to rely upon anybody except for myself. And so I mm. needed to make sure I could take care of myself. And if there were things that I was going to want, I was going to have to do that for myself. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think this question's, you know, particularly interesting talking to someone like you because you know people have a you know i'll give a background of who you are and whatnot in the intro to this episode so they'll have an idea of the things you've done and i think about you know someone who has been able to uh work in the levels that you have worked in this business not only being a black woman and, and actually i wrote about this when i you know i did an article about you for when i was back at frame io i think i called the article Black, blonde, and bold, um, succeeding in Hollywood when you don't fit the mold. Exactly. The name of the yes, yes, yes. And I remember because at the time I interviewed you, uh, you had like a short, short hair and it was, and it was bleach blonde. Right. I think that's what your hair was like. I love right. that hair. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was cool. It was, it was, but it was very different from like when I originally met you. Your hair was longer. Your hair is longer now. Um, and so when you think about, Hollywood executives, you know, a black woman with a short blonde, bleach blonde is not what comes to mind. And so like for you, what was there any, I mean, I, I have no doubt that your womanhood and your race played a role or play some role in how you navigate. Um, but 
even the you know even like having like was there ever any concern on your part and making your hair like that in this industry like did you think it would hold you back did you ever have any pauses did you say fuck it this is what i want to do and and your the way you described your childhood did that play into the kind of decisions you make as a woman who's achieved the level of success in this business you have those are great questions um my hair you know it's interesting hair is such a big topic right now and it's actually uh, a bit of an, an uh, a large-scale initiative that I want to do later, black hair. Uh, let me pause thing. you for just a minute. Yep. Just because I, uh, I thought about one thing, because I want to hear your answer, but I want to work into the question. I personally acknowledge the fact that I'm a man asking a woman about a physical body part as it relates to, like, if you were a white man who bleached your hair blonde, I don't think anyone would be asking the question. And I just want to recognize yeah. that I recognize and I acknowledge that. And, you know, and it's funny because I recently had on the show, as of this airing, um, this video producer named Valentina V. And she's like one of the few Adobe Max masters. She's like the Adobe, she's the only Adobe master who doesn't work for Adobe, who's like a master in video production. Yet, mm-hmm. you know, when she, oftentimes she gets commented on her looks when she's doing like video related stuff. And she's like a badass cinematographer, editor, DP, the whole nine. And oh, so, wow, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, she, and she was sharing the story of how she, uh, Adobe made an ad about her and people were, con- every comment on the ad was about her looks, her boobs, her, all this kind of stuff. Wow. Yeah, it's cr- <laughs> crazy. And so oftentimes, so I, I just want to say, like, I acknowledge that it is not uncommon for women to be asked about their looks in this business even when they're like someone of your caliber who's not doing anything related, right. you know, you're not a model, you're not an actress, you're not in front of the camera, so it shouldn't matter. But I wanted to acknowledge that, but I wanted to ask it because I know that for women, that kind of thing makes a difference. And so I, I just wanted to- I appreciate that. that. I yeah, appreciate yeah. that acknowledgement. Yes. <laughs> um, so yeah, black hair just generally is a big topic uh mm-hmm. right now in the world society um and and also within my industry film and television for people who are in front of the camera um so i actually have i'm i have grown increasingly um less desirous of needing to spend a lot of time on my hair i mm-hmm. just i you know, and, and that's no, that's no slight to anybody who does like to spend a lot of time on their hair and, you know, and, you know, look very glamorous or whatever the case may be. It's just for my own sensibility and the things that, that I um, like and enjoy and need, feel the need where I put my, I don't, I don't have the room within that spectrum to spend much time on my hair. So I've always, um, uh, particularly in my adult life, sought out hairstyles that allow me to not spend a lot of time on my hair, um, Mm -hmm. particularly on a daily basis. Sometimes it's a dedicated amount of time on one day so that like when I used to wear braids so that then I could spend weeks without having to deal with my hair in the morning. So 
Um, I, I actually, I don't like hair. Like I don't like my hair. At one point I used (laughs) to say, I wish that I could just shave. I wish that we women or everybody could just all shave our heads bald and like pick a design for our head like that. Like there used to be a show. I can't remember what it was because I used to quote it. I wish we could be like such and such show and we were all bald and we just have a different pattern on our head and then we wouldn't have to deal with hair. So um, at a certain, you know, I used to just be like, man, I just don't want any hair. And, and it, there would be something in the back of my psyche that I just want to shave all my hair off. And mm. so eventually at the point where I did, you know, I, my life became so busy for a lot of reasons. And I, my hair started looking really ridiculous because I didn't have time to deal with it. And so I was like, I, I can't do all of the things that are consuming my day and also need to deal with my hair. So I need to get rid of it. And so I was like, I'm going to just do it. I'm finally going to do it. I'm going to shave all my hair off. And I had, I had also wanted to try bleaching my hair. Hmm. So I was like, that's it. And shit, I'm, I'm going to cut all my hair off and I'm going to bleach it blonde. <laughs> and I think I had a little bit more bravery because, um, there was a uh, another woman whose name is escaping me who everybody used to say oh you look like so-and-so I'm, I'm telling my age now because I can't remember her name but there was someone <laughs> she actually I think it was one of Puff, Puff's girlfriends and she had her hair like that and so kind of gave me a little bit of bravery to do it mm-hmm. so I told JD I said I'm gonna shave my hair off but I didn't tell him about blonde. And so he you didn't tell like, him about okay. what? The blonde. I didn't tell him I was going to bleach it. And, right. and for those listening, JD's her husband. You didn't get that. That's right. Yes. <laughs> um, so he's like, okay. And so I did. I went and I, sh- and it was so freeing. I have never felt so free with my hair in my wow. entire life and I haven't since even like I have a very you know I have locks now so I also don't need to deal with my hair much but there has never been a greater freedom for me and I felt I almost felt like I wasn't a this is weird like I didn't feel like a woman anymore like I was like I'm Hmm. so free it's like I can't (laughs) even that's so weird I mean that thought just came to me right now but just reflecting back on how it was, mm. and it wasn't because I didn't have hair. It was because I was not chained to my hair anymore. Mm. And it was just like, I have never felt this feeling. It was mm-hmm. great. It was so wonderful. And, and more to the question of, you know, did that tie into, you know, my childhood? I think, I think I've been a little bit fearless um for the most part in my life about what other people think of me and I think that's because I've worked very hard and I I have confidence and I know that that the work product that I bring to whatever whatever I'm doing is is at a level that it should be regarded as very valuable 
So whatever I look like or whatever else should be completely irrelevant, even though it's not. And I found out quickly that it's not, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> walking into the room as a black woman with, you know, shaved off blonde hair is a thing. Like, you know, you get noticed and you get whatever. And then me being a, 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 a black woman who is also not shy and speaks candidly that adds to all of that. So mm-hmm. um, at the time I was at um, a production company that I, that I was with for 12 years called Alcon Entertainment. I had been there, uh, I don't know, maybe eight years, nine years or something like that at the time that I did it. And so I was very secure in my job. Um, mm-hmm. I had a great run there, you know, I had great relationship with all my bosses and, you know, I was in a, in a position of, you know, influence there and authority. And so there was going to be no, oh, I'm going to show up with this hair and suddenly I'm going to get demoted or right. I'm no longer going to get assignments or any of those kinds of things. So there was none of that. Um, I don't think I would have, it would have changed my decision had I been working somewhere else, even if it were, you know, somewhere more corporate or at one of the studios. Um, but that's sort of, I mean, you know, I had no qualms about doing it at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Alcon. Um, I remember um, you, you were at Alcon, you left Alcon, and then you had a stint at Netflix. And then there was a period of time where you're in between, like what you're doing now, where you're SVP at Nickelodeon and, um, yeah. and your time at, at Netflix. And I remember, you know, having, you know, and I know you well enough, I feel comfortable asking this question because I know you'll answer it. Um, but feel free not to if you don't want. But I remember you feel, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> but I remember you having um, having frustration at how is it that someone with your level? Because I mean, the amount of experience you had as a producer and the movies you've done and my years is just like off yeah. the charts. Yeah. Like how? Yeah. Talk to me a little bit how you were feeling during that season where you're in between yeah. your job now and then, and and things that you thought, I mean, it can be easy to say, oh, it's because you're black or it's because you're a woman. And I have no doubt that maybe there are some of that. I vaguely remember, I mean, I won't mention companies or names, but I remember one job you applying for and some person who got the job was empirically less qualified than you. And I just kind of, I mean, talk to me a little bit about that because no doubt you're not the only person who's been in that space in this industry. Like, how did you push through it? Um, how did, how were you reflecting on it at the time? You know, whatever you're willing to share. Yeah. Uh, so I had spent this 12 years at Alcon Entertainment. I left as an EVP of production. I had done a big body of work, a big budget move. I mean, the, what I oversaw in those 12 years that I was there ran the gamut. I could do basically anything on the feature side what were some of the movies that you what were some of the bigger movies you had yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna let you know so like we the budgets so the budgets i oversaw range from 12 million to 110 million Hmm. um i did movies like um 
lottery ticket. I did movies like Chasing Liberty. I did movies like Love Don't Cost a Thing. Um, I did movies like Book of Eli, mm. um, The Blind Side, Transcendence. And my final one um, was a remake of Point Break, which we shot in 10 different countries mm. all over the world in extreme sports. Right. Um, so needless to say, and, you know, I shot, you know, I, I oversaw stuff that we shot in, you know, all over the United States, Louisiana, Georgia. Los Angeles, all over Canada. You know, I did stuff in Toronto. I did stuff in Vancouver. We did stuff in Europe, um, Prague, mm. London. Crazy. You know, um, yeah, South Africa. We did, I did a, a animated a hybrid called Racing Stripes that we shot in South Africa. So, I mean, everything, the gamut. <laughs> right. The gamut, right? So then uh, I chose to leave for a variety of reasons, including wanting to pursue some of my own projects. Mm -hmm. And I left and I said, you know, I'm going to take six months off. And interestingly, six months to the day, almost, I started um, a consulting gig with Netflix. And so I did that and there, and it was in the early days of them doing features. Mm -hmm. They had, you know, they had had some TV shows, you know, um, House of Cards was already popular and so forth but a lot of people don't know netflix didn't actually produce that show um that was a licensed show and many of their early mm. shows mm -hmm. um they licensed uh from other people and mm -hmm. branded it as an netflix. original netflix you know i but mean it was, they do that now to my knowledge it was made right? for them they do they have they have a combination they yes. some of them they license and brand as netflix and some of them they actually produce themselves correct a lot more now, um, but, but back in those days, this was 2015, May 2015, they weren't really producing their own show. So it was very early, like it was the infancy of content creation at Netflix. And they, and they definitely weren't producing movies yet. Um, they had done like maybe one or two when I, when I went in to consult with them. And so they, they, that was getting going again, this was in 2015. So, I spent almost nine months at Netflix. And so like now here I am and everybody wanted to work for Netflix. It was like the hot thing. Like, you know, it was so sexy. Like, how do I get, you know, everybody was trying to figure, how do I get a job at Netflix? How do I get a job <laughs> at Netflix? And it was like, it was such a, you know, you'd be so envious of like, how do you, you know, is it's like, <laughs> you know, getting the golden ticket to, right. you know, Willy Wonka's chocolate factory or something. <laughs> right. And so, so, so now I had done this stint at Netflix, this consulting time there. So now, I mean, I should be so, you know, I should be able to name right. <laughs> where I want to go next. Well, a few things kept popped up and on the feature side. And one of the reasons I left Alcon is because, you know, TV had started to take off, you know, largely due to what was happening at Netflix and, you know, House of Cards and all these things and TV content was changing and it was becoming this different thing. From my, from, from my perspective, it was more interesting, um, just the essence of the content itself, not the business of making television, which I found very attractive. And it also, it became evident that it was, it was a growth, like the growth in the business 
was in television and features were contracting for a lot of reasons. So I, one of the reasons I left is I wanted to pursue television, but, and I had a few meetings um, for television jobs and I basically, you know, the meetings were positive, but you know, I came to understand whether they came right out to say it or I was able to infer it. I heard elsewhere from other people that I didn't get those jobs because I hadn't work, worked in television. So after the Netflix gig, I started consulting and just, you know, doing some other things on the feature side to earn a living. But then even that dried up and I had a full solid year of no work at all. And mm -hmm. I was interviewing for some things, you know, and uh, either, you know, I didn't have the right experience or some other, you know, and I think I think at that point, like when I left Alcon, people thought I was crazy because who leaves a job? Like who right. just leaves a job unless yeah. you have another job. Right. I mean, everybody leaves for another job. Nobody leaves a job without having a job. Right. Unless, you know, you have a life altering experience or something <laughs> that you can't work or whatever. Yeah. So everybody thought I was crazy, even though, and I knew they thought I was crazy, even though they weren't saying it to my face. And so then I began to think, wow, like, is this, and I think there was like a stigma, which is a little bit ridiculous because now during the time that I was off between Alcon and Netflix, I was like, this is amazing. I had such an amazing, I was like, everybody, every adult person should take some time off from their mm. working career to just be, be quiet for a minute, sit, mm. reflect on your life, you know, figure out are you getting out of your life what you really want hmm. from your from your work, yeah. from your relationships, from your personal development, from your body, everything? So it was really great. And so I thought it was the most awesome thing ever. And then I got this job, you know, like a meet, a, a, to the day that I wanted to have this job. And then I was off and I was like, oh, my God, I think I made a mistake. There's probably a stigma. I'm a black woman, you know, there's not an explanation of, you know, I have this gap in my resume, mm -hmm. six months, ooh, <laughs> you know, whatever. Right. And so, um, and then I interviewed for these jobs and, and one in particular that you mentioned was with, you know, another kind of independently situated production company making bit, you know, the range of movies that were right in my wheelhouse for a major studio. It was almost, you know, like it was almost like Alcon. Mm -hmm. And that was like a couple of places, mm. a couple of places like that, that I interviewed with. So here I am having done this for t very successfully for 12 years, you know, all, you know, I was always on budget, always on schedule. Like there were no, I mean, you know, you have the tough, hard productions where it's like, oh my God, how do we get through that? But we never, I never, I didn't have any nightmare scenarios of right. like, oh boy, you know, we just barely delivered that movie or anything. I mean, I had 12 solid years of success mm -hmm. of a gamut of, you know, so 
And then, you know, in one particular case that, like you mentioned, they hired this person whose background was news. <laughs> I mean, it was a man. Uh-huh. And, but he had some kind of tie internally to the company or something. So I was just like, what does that mean? And, and I think we even talked about, and I've since talked about with other people, when you're in those situations, this is what's insidious about racism and sexism. Mm. It's there's there's the people who employ it, whether they're doing it consciously or subconsciously. It is very easy to have plausible deniability. Mm. Very easy. Yeah. Oh, it's not because you're a woman. It's not because you're black. You know, it's just like, oh, we just had this other um, qualified person. You know, um, I was just following this Twitter conversation of one of my, um, an, an alumna from USC who had been trying to get um, a pos- certain position at a college Along the same lines as um, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who didn't get the tenure thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, And, and for those listening, kept, Nicole Hannah-Jones is the creator of the 1619 Project. Project, yeah. Yeah. And she was talking about having applied at multiple um, educational institutions and not getting these positions. And so a white male chimed in and said, how do you know that the, you know it's racism or sexism that caused you not to get you know maybe it's the these other reasons that these other people got selected and it's like yeah yeah how do you what can you say can you can i you know hop into those per- people's minds and show you know what they were thinking or can i like look at you know sneak into their office and see some note that they wrote on a piece of paper that you know i can't do any of those things you know right um but you know i've done a lot now too of training courses around bias and hiring Mm -hmm. because companies are now trying to do better about it and there is so much that is put into hiring so much bias you know there's similarity bias there's expediency bias there's something called safety bias which i just learned what that means and and safety bias it doesn't mean like oh i'm being threatened Mm -hmm. safety bias is a hiring manager might hire someone who is less qualified or more mediocre but is more of a known entity than someone whose you know background and experience or resume might suggest that they be that they're more stellar because that person is an unknown like maybe they Mm. are of a different ethnicity and i've never i've never you know interacted with that ethnicity before and what are they going to be like in the office or maybe they you know maybe they're bilingual and english is their second language and i don't know what that's going to be like and so there's a safety like they might hire well this guy's kind of like less or whatever but i'm gonna i'm gonna hire this person because i know what i'm getting with the white guy right 
So, I mean, so it became the year off became quite a challenge and you know I'm a breadwinner for my family and so you know it, it really became a okay now we have to reevaluate our our lives and our situations and our choices that we made for ourselves which you know by the way that that happens in life you have to do that sometimes you have to do mm-hmm. nothing wrong with that and there's no right. saying that you're gonna walk into this life and have an easy street but um right it got it got a little bit like, wow, what are we going to do now? What are, what are we going to mm-hmm. do? What did I do to myself? Have I destroyed my career? <laughs> you know, am I ever going to be mm. able to get back to where I was and right. clearly am qualified to be, you know, all of these questions. And, and what ended up happening was I ended up needing to take a significant step back to get to then pull myself back to where I am now. Hmm. What do you mean a a significant step back The taking the year off and no. So I took the year off. Mm -hmm. I did, I did. And finally, you know, I had some friends who, you know, had some work to throw at me on a consultant basis, which was great. Like saved me, Mm -hmm. but an opportunity came at Freeform network, which is um, one of the Walt Disney television, basic cable networks. And the position was director level. Mm-hmm. It was a call, it was a consulting thing initially, which was which was mm-hmm. great. So because I was consulting in time, so right. I was consulting with them. But um, it was director level, which is you know below VP level. Mm-hmm. And I here I was. I had been EVP right. at a certain point. You know a couple years prior so yeah (laughs) that was and you know what the thing was it's another place where I didn't care like thank god I don't care what people think Mm -hmm. (laughs) because oh my god I did I'm very sure that I would have turned it down and been like oh my god I can't take that what will people think of me you know I have to wait until I can mm-hmm. finally find some job that's VP or above level or whatever. Right, right. Because people will be like, oh my God, did you hear Yolanda has a job and she's just a director and da 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 da? And I'm like, look, oh, look what happened to her. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> right. But it, that's not how I made my decision about taking mm-hmm. that job. And it yeah. ended up being the best thing ever. Mm. I mean, here's the thing. It, I, there's really no reason that that should have happened to me given yeah. my work experience and were I a different person you know if I were you know cisgender white male and I feel so bad because <laughs> like man we're always like <laughs> the person to point to that's you know <laughs> so privileged but um I, I you know I just I don't have any doubt that the doors that were not opening to me would have been open to me. Yeah. Because of what I was bringing to the table, the mm-hmm. experience, you know, the work, the, the result of the work, all of the work product, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the spectrum of it. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing, but you know, that that's part of the journey too, I guess. Yeah. 
No, for sure. And you're right. You're saying the insidiousness of sexism and racism because of what you're saying. Like, you don't know. Like, oh, for sure. And, and it's one of the arguments that comes up whenever, whenever people talk about systemic racism. The, yeah. the critics of it say they always point to the fact that there are no specific laws that say black people can't do this or women can't do that. Like, like that's their proof that right. there isn't. And in fact, the opposite, the opposite is true. There are laws that prohibit right. discrimination on that basis. Right. So and the so, opposite is true. You know? And then, so they'll point to that saying, how can you say there's systemic racism or sexism when you have all these laws, whatnot? And it's this either um, willful ignorance or uh, gross negligence of education or a combination of both really that there is an understanding of the uh you know the subconscious racism or sexism that exists yeah. from the fact that we all grew up in this country like we all grew up watching the same television shows the same movies right, right. you know some of us are literal descendants parent children or grandchildren of people who had certain beliefs and yeah. you can't say that 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 isn't an effect right and and it come it does become frustrating when you're a part of the general marginalized group because you don't know and because they didn't come right out and say yeah. Yeah. you know we're not hiring Yolanda because she's black obviously no one's ever going to say that um say that. It, of course not but and they might not yeah. even have thought it they might not, they might not have it. consciously thought it right they might not have consciously thought it or, you know, you know, maybe these people met me, maybe they even lied to me, you know, mm -hmm. but then there was other people and I was like, okay, well, I have, I have these several people, but, uh, she might be a little better, but the, I also met this white person who seems pretty yes. good too. Right. And, and I, and I'm going to be like, honest. And they're me. They're like me, they're you know, like they're, me. <laughs> or whatever. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. You know, and I even catch myself responding to certain things when I see like certain people who connect with me on LinkedIn. And I see myself responding mm -hmm. to, oh, if they're from a different country or whatnot. And I catch myself, I'm a black man. I catch myself saying, uh, oh. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's like, you know, this is a person from a certain country. Like, oh, no one's from that no one from that country has ever reached out to me before that seems kind of odd and and i don't have any ill will against that person but i think it's i almost think it's human nature for one but but two you yes. know there's the idea of the different and and if you are in this country where there are certain stereotypes that have been ingrained in us both positive and negative ones you can't you know no one's immune from that um listen everybody is biased and that's what the training's about every yes. but you have your your brain is wired to to have bias for to discern and to to make decisions to be able to sometimes it's about safety sometimes it's about you know um all different kinds of things it's like our brains are wired for that right. so that's why it's so important to be aware of it mm -hmm. um and understand and see yourself when you're doing that um you know 
tribal, you know, people formed mm-hmm. tribe. I mean, it was a way for survival, <laughs> you know, right. Tribalism was a, a survival mechanism, you know, at certain points. So we're wired for that. So we just have to understand that we're doing it and, and employ measures to, to, to work against it. But coming back though, to the laws, it's mm. inter- I was having a conversation with, um, so for those of you out there, I have a large group of, of friends from school at USC who we continue to be in contact and continue to hold group chat conversations all the time. Called the conversation just the other day about you know the the blowback against critical race theory right oh, now. Oh yeah, and I've been, I've been writing about that too. Speaking of laws, speaking of laws, you know I was saying. I believe that a lot of the pushback in not wanting to not to do that kind of education, you know, we were talking about how do we fix it? How do we fix the legacy of racism? And I and it frustrates me because, you know, when when people say, oh, you know, slavery was so long ago and racism is over and, you know, some people are racist, but it's not a racist country and all these things. And And I believe it's a it's a simplification and it's a failure to understand, and this term has been put out there before, but it's really so important, the legacy of slavery. Mm. Yes, it was 400 years ago that it started, you know, whatever, 200 years plus that it was, we were free, we've been free for 200 years. Not even you know, 200 whatever. years, just, just, yeah, just not even about 150, years. yeah. Yeah, 150. So, so everything should be fine. Like, you know, how Tom Hanks wrote, like, oh, now we're all free and equal and equal opportunity and all those things. Like, no, you, when you've had hundreds of years of people who were in indentured servitude and tortured, and then they came out of that, and then there was a brief period in Reconstruction where these people actually like, there was an opportunity mm-hmm. where what people are talking about could have actually happened. Like, you know, there were black people elected to Congress, you know, they started owning business, all those things. And then for a whole set of reasons that we don't have to get into, you know, they put in a lot of, you know, things into the law to make sure to continue to subjugate black people. It, so that they didn't have the same economic opportunities and the same educational opportunities unless they tried to carve it out for themselves. And then you get a Tulsa, Oklahoma, because <laughs> right. that's a problem. So, so now you've got generations and generations and generations and generations and hundreds of years of an entire people who've needed to climb uphill against public policy put in place to make sure or, or to bring about the fact that they couldn't ultimately attain what they were capable of attaining and doing mm-hmm. and achieving. And that is through to this day. And I said, you know, this, the wealth and dominance and culture of this country is owing to the free labor. Oh, imagine having free labor 
in an industry for hundreds of years mm-hmm. and the amount of wealth that is created by that. And the, you know, when you listen to 1619 and the, 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 they bring, there was, such a dominance in cotton, you mm. know, mm-hmm. in the U.S. after the cotton gin was, you know, created, so much so that it ended up it it ended up caving back in on itself because the market got flooded with cotton, mm-hmm. and so and so then you know they weren't making as much money, so then they'd have to get more slay. It was like you know self fulfilling prophecy, like and it became more brutal. All these things. Anyway, the reason this the wealth of this country to start out and the dominance in the world dominance of it is owing a lot to that and that came on the backs of free labor and I think so many people I think people consciously and subconsciously don't want to acknowledge it because then it will mean sharing credit for how this country came to be what it is and Mm. also acknowledging the you know the great transgression of it and the fact that black people have never been made whole and then on top of it there's a direct thread i mean you can very easily trace the thread of slavery and the law of slavery has just continued to be modernized you can Mm -hmm. tie it so slavery was abolished but then they put in other laws that then kept people and then when that was no longer acceptable socially then they create some other law that was socially acceptable after that. And then when that was no longer socially acceptable, they put in another law, you know, and then suddenly, you know, you can, you can, oh, well, we can do this. Well, you can't discriminate people. Um, you know, you can't discriminate against the race for giving them a bank loan, but you can do redlining mm-hmm. so that, you know, black people can only get loans in certain neighborhoods you know, and, and you can trace it all the way from slavery till now mm-hmm. and say, here is why we are where we are and why black people are in the position that they're in. <laughs> so it's like, God forbid we teach that because right. then there has to be a reckoning and an acknowledgement of what is, what has happened to black people and what's probably owed to black people. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's probably a discussion for another podcast, though it would be a good one. Yeah. Um yeah. but yeah. you mentioned Tulsa, and this is a good segue to bring it back to the art of television and movie making and, and whatnot. Um I've heard uh countless times how and you know, shamefully I count myself in this group of people who did not even know about Tulsa until they saw it on HBO's The Watchmen. And mm-hmm. how, so I wanted you to comment on just the power of film, whether it's television or movies or whatnot, to um, enlighten us about history and um, the best way of going about doing that. Because, you know, obviously we saw, you know, Watchmen, which was a a powerful film, a powerful series was really good. Um, but, you know, since then, as of this recording, Amazon recently released two shows, um, Them, um, which is a 10-piece mm-hmm, mm-hmm. sort of like in the vein of Get Out and Us, sort of like a genre horror um, um, uh, 
series about this black family that moves into East Compton, which back in the mid mid fifties was very white. And they deal with two horrors, the yeah. horrors of the white people who are Kevin Costner actually grew up in Compton. Did he really? <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So yeah. they deal with the horrors yeah. of the of the white people in the community trying to get them out. And then the horrors of this, you know, sort of like demonic ghost like force that's haunting them. Um, and then um, also on Amazon, it recently came out The Underground Railroad, which is based on a mm-hmm. Pulitzer Prize winning book. And so, um, and I've seen comments, including from Black people, who will say something like, I don't want to see Black trauma anymore. Like, they don't want to see, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like, if you've ever seen 12 Years yeah. a Slave, there's a scene that's pretty much like that in the first episode of Underground Railroad, just the whipping. Um, and it's just very hard to watch. I had to stop. I haven't even gone into episode two yet, but uh, I heard I heard the later episodes are not as bad. But so comment if you will on that one: the power of you know like film to you know to history and and what does it say about our country that that's where we're getting our education? Like so many people. <laughs> I know. I know. Like so many people are learning about Tulsa and and some of the specific evils of slavery through television and movies um, versus the textbooks in college or high school. Um, and then and then this issue of like black trauma and whatnot as it's depicted in film. Yeah. Um, you know, on the one hand, it's ridiculous that um, on the one hand, it's ridiculous that uh, so many people have that experience of having learned about Tulsa on Watchmen. I think most everybody, I mean, there's a handful of black people who knew. Um, Right, yeah. You know, there's a lot, many black people didn't know. Many, most. Yeah, Yeah. myself included. Yeah, yeah. I I knew, but I learned very late. I mean, I was I was I'm sure I was in my 30s. Mm-hmm. So um, that's crazy uh, that this thing in history happened, and um, we didn't know. It was never taught. I mean, people could say, "Oh, well, it's this one incident that happened, and why should it be in the history books or whatever?" Blah blah blah. There were air raids, <laughs> mm. you know. I mean, and the truth is that that wasn't the only incident like that. There were other race massacres, race right, race massacres, very similar to Tulsa, where entire communities of black people were killed. Um, may not not necessarily out of jealousy of their wealth, but for some other reason. And so it's not like Tulsa was the only time that it ever happened. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I believe there was um, there was envy of the prosperity was an element in some of those things, but it was also about uh, you know this perceived being out of your place and oh my God, the black men are going to come for our women. Like, what was? <laughs> it's it's just amazing now reflecting especially with so many you know uh biracial mixed race couples like you know what 
it's it's really it's truly fascinating the, the human psyche and like what was going to happen if black men and white women got together i mean anyway mm. so there were actual air raids from the government <laughs> on this town so and and for so many people to have died i mean there's there even we are somewhat desensitized now because of you know the amount of mass shootings that we have in our lives now but the the um, the number of incidents of mass killings is not that many <laughs> you know mm -hmm. so for 300 people to have died <laughs> in this and it would be orchestrated by the government and for that to not be anything that anybody other than those descendants who were involved to know about is crazy yeah. and it would be great for us to be teaching our actual history in this country so that we can reckon with it. On the other, on the flip side, and I want to come back to that point in a second, but on the flip side, throughout history, when there's been a push-pull of injustice or, you know, societal ills, it has been art hmm. and activism that's led the way. So it's in that way, it makes perfect sense almost yeah. for people to be learning about it through watching Watchmen. Yeah. It's ridiculous, but it's mm -hmm. also makes sense, you know, yeah. that it's art to bring awareness and to shine a light and to, you know, it's oftentimes it, throughout history why many artists were persecuted because they were. Mm -hmm shining a light on things you know and so film and television um definitely has a place and quite frankly it's interesting to me because there has been so much content in film and tv to you know um to 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 pay homage to and to educate the people about so many atrocities that we absolutely should also know about mm -hmm. you know i mean there's a lot of there there's a lot of filmed entertainment pertaining to you know the Nazi, the rise of nazism and you know the holocaust and all those things and i mean tremendous filmmaking some of the best filmmaking we've had Mm. um you know even going all the way back to you know television every easter <laughs> we have you know the ten commandments right you know which is ironic quite frankly right yes <laughs> the yeah. yeah. they, they used to play the ten commandments every easter which is right um but uh we should continue to do that and it related to the i don't want trauma i can't do the trauma porn you know a lot of people call it trauma porn right. now i can't do it anymore I, I i can understand that sentiment i don't think that means we can't do it and i don't th i also don't think it means we don't need that content still because clearly people educated about so many of these things mm -hmm. 
I mean, certainly everybody feels like, oh, we know all about slavery. We know about slavery. Actually, we really don't. Mm. I mean, we know, like we saw Roots. Some of us. Those of us who are old of us. Those of us who are old enough enough. to have seen it. And now, you know, people have seen 12 Years a Slave. And, you know, and the, the tiny bit of, you know, real estate it's given in history books people we really don't know about slavery and i I came to understand that in listening to the 1619 project there's so much about you know the the mechanism and the industry of slavery that you really don't know about and it the problem is it's 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 um it's psychologically damage i mean it's psychologically hard Mm. it's so distressing it's so i mean for black people especially you know Mm -hmm. by by design it's it's a it's a it's a crushing of the psyche like so many of us have been able to it, it is it's in our dna as black people to surpass those messages we have to it's like a survival thing but the pain of it is so to the core of yourself and it's the reason why when a black man named george floyd who lives in you know minneapolis and somewhere i've that's i've never heard of in some state i've never been to you know, many miles away from where I am, when you hear about that as a black person, it is soul crushing. It's like, this person isn't it. I I don't know this person from Adam, Mm -hmm. but it's soul crushing because it's so tied to our identity and to be able to get to a place in your psyche where you can remove yourself from the fact that people can do that to another human being simply because they're black. That's like who you, that's the core to who you are. It's mm. like, you can't really do it. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's impossible. So it's, it's so hard. I mean, and we've had so much of this, we've been bombarded with so much of it in our reality to then need to process it and subject ourselves to it and, and giving audience to some content is is a hard pill to swallow for a lot of people yeah yeah um and from what i understand it's been done very well like barry jenkins has i haven't started it yet um you know not quite sure when i will but from what i understand he he did an amazing job and it's just you know it's information we need to have but it's you know the people a lot oftentimes the people who need to really get the information and receive the messages are not the people who do mm-hmm. <laughs> so. yeah that is true that is true that's it for part one of my interview with yolanda huge thanks to her for taking time out of her super busy schedule to talk with me Remember, in two weeks, we'll have part two where we'll get into detail on the differences between TV and film producers. You're not going to want to miss that one. Also, let me take this opportunity to pitch that other podcast you can find me and Yolanda, the Dungeons and Durex podcast, part of the Ebony Covering Black America podcast network. 
It's a narrative-style show that comically explores my journey as a black man reconnecting with my blackness. Find it wherever you find your favorite podcasts. This podcast, Crossing the 180, is a production of Blade Runner Media and part of the Pro Video Coalition's Art of the Frame podcast series. This episode was produced, written, edited, and hosted by yours truly, Ron Dawson. You can follow me on Twitter at Blade Runner, that's Ronner with a no, and you can follow me on Instagram at Blurred Ronner. Follow Pro Video Coalition on Twitter at twitter.com slash pro video. Now, if you celebrate Hanukkah, I hope you had a wonderful one as it came earlier this year. I believe it ended the day before the show posted, so happy Hanukkah. That's it for now. Until next time, remember, if the story sucks, I don't care what you shot it with or cut it on. See you in two weeks. It's funny, when I first started podcasting back in 2007, I this is just, I would take my video camera, my camcorder, and so I would call the person, uh-huh. and then I would use my lavalier mic on the on the transmitter of the phone and spit it by the phone and that's how i recorded and then i had to transfer- so you'd use the sound from that and i used the sound from that and i would transfer that <laughs> so that i would do that onto a digital tape and then transfer that tape to the computer um we've come a long way oh my god wow yeah <laughs>